Hello, and welcome to She Dynasty. I'm Valerie Moiselle, and these are the women who rule. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to She Dynasty. Today, we have a first. And what I mean by that is that we will be interviewing our first ever transgender woman on the show. Her name is Toni Newman, and her story is so incredible. Toni Newman is a best-selling author, and Toni's memoir titled I Rise, The Transformation of Toni Newman is the first memoir ever written in America by a member of the African-American transgender community. She is also the director of the Coalition for Justice and Equality Across Movements at the National Minority AIDS Council. She is also pursuing a Juris Doctorate in law so that she can advocate for transgender rights. Hi, how are you doing? I'm pretty good. And yourself? Yeah, it's so nice to see you again. So excited to be doing this with you today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you both. I'm so excited to have you on the show today. I'm glad to be here. So I understand that today is International Transgender Day of Visibility. Is that right? That is correct. You are my seventh panel in the last two days and my final one. So thank you for having me. You are the conclusion of TDOV today. Oh, my goodness. TDOV, is that is that the acronym? Transgender Day of Visibility. That's just abbreviated for TDOV, Transgender Day of Visibility. Well, I'm very excited about this interview for many, many reasons. And the first reason, you know, just to be very, very honest, um, you know, you are the first transgender woman I've had on my show, and I have a lot of questions. And you know, I, I'm sure a lot of people have a lot of questions and I, you know, I'm embarrassed to say that I'm not as educated as I should be. So I'm really hoping that today, you know, I can ask lots of questions and you can give me lots of honest answers. And, um, you know, hopefully we can do more educating just as we all kind of learn and grow. And I'm really excited to dig in with you. I think that is my purpose from God to educate and enlighten. I think I have a way to do a presentation about who and what I am in a way that's understandable to people who come from all walks of life. So I'm glad to be here to educate and enlighten. I love that. You know, I was reading, um, you know, your bio on your website, and obviously you've just put out this memoir and just kind of, you know, it's obviously so intriguing. Um, I've actually just ordered the book. So I appreciate that. Yes, I would have sent it to you for free if you would have asked. <laughs> oh, I want to support. I want to support. But, you know, just reading, you know, this one little part where you say, you know, I went from being um, a sissy boy to a scholarship student, to a business professional, to an escort, to a drag queen, to a New York prostitute, to a dominatrix, to now attending law school and somehow a CEO and in all of that, I mean, Wow, what an incredible journey that you've been on. And, you know, thank you for sharing it with me today. Valerie, it's not the path I would have chosen. And I know my mother, a good Christian woman who's been a Christian woman all her life. We came from a middle-class family. I don't think that was her picture of her dream for me, but that is what I found myself in at that moment. And then I had to learn how to maneuver and to survive. And some of those were hard decisions, but... Um, they had to be made in order for Tony to become the Tony you know today. I love that. Well, thank you for being true to yourself. And hopefully that inspires others listening to. People. I'm hoping so too, whoever listening. Just be your authentic self, whether that's trans, uh, 
a woman, a man, just be whom you think God has called you to be. All right. Well, let's start from the very, very beginning. I want to hear a little bit about your childhood because obviously I want to understand, you know, how this came to be when you first realized that, you know, perhaps you, um, you know, might transition. And I'm sure it's, it was a long journey for you, even in the very beginning. So tell us a little bit about your childhood first. And I also want to know when you were a child, what did you want to do when you grew up? What did you think you were going to do when you grew up? Well, as I stated in the book, I was a, 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 a bird of a different feather. I am from Jacksonville, North Carolina, uh, home of the Camp Lejeune Marine Corps base. Father's retired, uh, he's deceased, uh, was a retired Army sergeant, um, worked for civil service on the base. I went to Jacksonville uh, Elementary, middle school and high school. Um, I excelled in high school and in middle school. I knew about the age of nine or 10, there was something different about me because I had some extremely effeminate um, characteristics that my uncle, I, I'll call him Uncle M, uh, would say, boy, is that when he spit? Well, he didn't say effeminate. He said, sissy boy. Um, it's what he said. So I quoted him without giving him the actual quote. I was very effeminate and loved to be with the women. I loved to be in the kitchen and follow my mother around. I didn't enjoy sports. I didn't enjoy the masculinity. I, I just was driven towards femininity and had such a natural feminine side to me that I just said, nine years old, you know, you're a child. You just, oh, you just express it. And uh, I, I, I don't know where that came from, but that's what it was. Um, and several people recognized that this is a really effeminate, effeminate young boy. And how did that make you feel at the time? Was it was it when people would call you a sissy boy? What did you take it as a compliment or an insult? You know, or? I look back on it, and you know, I knew it came from a place of love because as soon as he said that, he'd go buy me an ice cream cone and say, "Let's go." So I didn't take it like, "Oh, whoa, that's not nice." I took it like, "Okay, I'm a sissy boy. What are we gonna do about it? I don't know. Let's go get ice cream." And, you know, nobody really made a big fuss about like, oh, my God, blah, 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 until I became 15 and 16. Then that's when the seriousness of the matter became when my mother began to say, give me your hand. Let's pray. Let's seek the help of the father. Mm -hmm. This has gone into something that I think uh, I don't like. She never said I was gay. I think she knew it. Um, but I had a really feminine characteristic in high school that concerned her a great deal. And she was, you know, she prayed a lot two or three times a day. She would say, come and pray with me, Tony, hold my hand. We're going to pray, baby. We're going to seek God's help on this matter. So we prayed and we prayed and I continued to be feminine. It never went anywhere. <laughs> so it was, I would pray with her. I love you, mama. I love you. We pray, we cry together, and then I get up and be the same effeminate sissy boy I was like 10 minutes ago. So it was like a cycle we did daily. Did she, did did she ever uh, articulate in words to you what the, in her mind, the issue is that you were praying about? Or she was just... She, she thought just... that I had, uh, something had taken me from the light. She thought darkness had creeped in. Between 9 and 13, nobody cared. But at 14 and 15, you're in high school now. You've got to masculine up. You've got to be more masculine. I ran track. I tried to play baseball. So I gave it a, a, a shot for her because I, I love my mother. She, she's a great woman. 
But I just realized it just wasn't in the cards for Tony to be a masculine figure. It just just wasn't going to be. And she prayed and prayed, even until I got the scholarship to go to Wake Forest. She was, I'm going to pray every day for you. And I'm like, okay, mother, I'll see you at, at Easter. Bye-bye. So it, it was, I think she knew, but it was her way of saying, I don't approve. I'm going to keep praying. And that was just her contentment of, I've got to do something. I don't like this. And you're going to do it anyway, but I, I, I've got to do something. So I'm going to pray every day. Right. So that's what she did. And did, she ever, did she ever feel like she was making progress with the praying? Or you she know, she's 86 years old. I, she's what second uh, stage of all time. I never asked her that. I'm like, did you think it was working? Did you make, I think she hoped and was optimistic because I'm an optimistic person. Even today, I get that from her. I think she was just optimistic. Like, if I pray long enough, the healing will appear. Um, and it never did. Bless her soul. Bless her soul. It never did occur. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. I speak to a lot of women on She Dynasty. And, you know, my parents, totally, obviously, different story. But they, you know, they, they were immigrants from another country. They never believed that a woman should ever be in business. I mean, they were really struggling with me wanting to, you know, even go to college. My parents, all they wanted for me was to to marry a rich man. That was their oh, only homemaker. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So, you know, it's like sometimes, you know, sometimes it's hard to blame your parents because it's all they know. It's their culture. It's what they're brought up with. It's their belief system. It's what their parents taught them. And, and she grew up with Grandma Lena who's another praying woman. Gotta fix it, come and... But you know, um, Valerie, to be honest, uh, for 10 years, I took that prayer to Wake Forest. I took it to my graduate school. I took it to going in the community college system. I began to pray because I, you know, I, I didn't want to make her unhappy. I, so knew, did- I knew if it really came out what I truly was. I did admit to her I was gay and that was crushing, but she somehow survived that. But the transgender thing I knew would destroy her. Changing my body. Um, I knew changing the Y, Tony, to the Tony of I. I knew that would just be like, what are you doing to yourself? And I tried for 10 years to just speak to God myself and pray. Pray daily, morning, noon, and night. Um, why do you, Why are you doing this to me? I, I didn't really want this. And I tell everybody, it wasn't something God knows I chose. For 10 years, I fought it. I didn't want to do it. I lived so unhappy. You know, if it wasn't in my true being, Valerie, I would have never done this to myself. I can only speak for Tony. I can only speak of my own lived experience. But this is not what I I, I had chosen for Tony. Uh, but that's not what I guess God had in mind. Um, it kept burning inside me and burning until I just couldn't, couldn't go any longer. And I had to begin that long transitional journey. So it's not something I choose. Some people say, oh, I I chose it. For me, it was a long, hard road to become a trans woman of color. So what did you, when you were a child, what did you think you wanted to be when you you grew up? I wanted to be a doctor. Uh, I went to Wake Forest under pre-med. I had got scholarships under pre-med. I didn't perform well under pre-med because as soon as I got to college, I went and found people who kind of looked like me. There were uh, uh, ladies who were performing and uh, they were transitioning. And I went out to the club pretty much every night of the week. So I didn't do well in, in biology and chemistry because I was too busy trying to discover who I really was. In the night hours after nine o'clock, 
I was studying these wonderful women and like, whoa, this is great. Oh, she has tits. Oh my God, that's just something else. Oh my God, look at her body. I I don't want her body. I like her body. Oh my God, I could take her tits and that body. Oh, so that was a discovery for me at Wake Forest. So I didn't do well in pre-med and end up under the advice of Dr. Yuri, the biology professor, changing my major because I couldn't focus on the, the, the first two years of pre-med. I was too busy trying to... Yeah, that's a lot to deal with. It's obviously a very demanding major and you were dealing with a lot personally. And I was dealing with self-discovery and, and just truly finding myself from people who, you know, I was on the other side of the tracks. They were on the Black neighborhood, uh, in the poor neighborhood where the club was. I was Wake Forest with all the rich folk. They said, you over there with all those rich white folk. I was driving my little Honda and they're like, why are you here? I said, I'm just here to learn and discover. It took me 10 years from that to do it, but I, it was a, a discovery for me at Wake Forest. I stayed in the streets and went to their homes afterwards. And like, oh my God, how do you do your makeup? And it was just, I was just so excited to learn. I got it. So one question I have though is, obviously you came out and, um, you know, came out to your mother and probably your family and friends that you were gay. And then you started this journey of identifying as trans or wanting to become trans. 10 years later, there's a 10 year gap. I'm gay. I didn't lose many people. They were cool with that. Even the church folk were like, okay, we kind of knew it. You're very feminine. It's not like, oh my God, you're so masculine. Why? So it wasn't like a big discovery when I announced that I was was gay. Ten years later, when I announced the transgenderism, that's when the cutoff, my siblings, my mother cut me off and sent me on a journey of, of solo discovery. So you're telling me that they accepted the fact that you were gay, but as soon as you decided that you wanted to go on this next journey, that was just a deal breaker for them. That was a deal breaker. Uh, Even for my gay friends, even for my gay, uh, at that point, I was a associate uh, uh, instructional supervisor, assistant to the dean at Coastal Carolina Community College and the fabulous Dr. Larry Robinson, Um, graduate school, doing well on my way up. Uh, got promoted to go to another community college. But it was that period when, you know, I just got a home and a car and people knew I was gay and accepted me. But when I began to transition, meaning take hormones, meaning take on a feminine appearance, no more characteristics, doing my nails, uh, taking hormones to grow um, breasts, my body began to lengthen out in that skinny male, little skinny boyish body, I had begun to turn into a more fuller physique. That's when uh, the, 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 the drama began when my family, mother, father was dead at that time, my siblings and, uh, and friends, you were making a huge mistake. You were a gay man, very smart. You're from Wake Forest. You, you met Dr. Angelou. You love her. You why are you doing this to yourself? Even some gays who I had associated with of lawyers and doctors on Sunday brunch, we get together. I'm at, I'm assistant dean. He's a lawyer. He's a medical doctor. She, they're public relations. They didn't understand. Why are you doing this to yourself? So I got it from all sides. I began to lose everyone around me um, and, and left North Carolina to move to New York at that time all by myself. Wow. I, I can't even imagine what you went through. So I understand this was a 20-year journey for you from start until, I guess, I don't know if it's the journey is ever finished. When you wake up and you go outside, Valerie, and you say, hello, world. This so is I, me with the wig on and the lipstick. And you like, like it or not, 
Yeah. You go. And like, and there's no shame and I don't feel fear. I'm walking out. Of course, that first couple of months with the wig and all of that, it didn't, of course, I look back now and see people look at me and think, oh, you look crazy. But I was just so jubilant to be able to put a wig on and begin the journey. And you started to touch on this, but I would love for you to just educate me and others more. Can you just push a little more and teach me what were the physical and mental challenges that you had to overcome to transition from a man to a woman? And and as much detail as you're willing to give. Uh, uh, I began to get on estrogen, um, which began estrogen. um, uh, I have a testosterone body. So I began to take um, medication to suppress the testosterone and then put estrogen in to increase the estrogen, which uh, take care of my body, uh, where men are heavy arms. I began to become smooth. Um, I did laser to get the laser off my face so I didn't have to continue to shave. I began to do laser on my whole body. Um, I began to do body enhancement um, in um, the uh, breast area and in the buttocks, as one of my good friends said, to take a, that skinny boyish flat booty that I had. I was a really skinny boy, almost like really skinny, maybe 90, 100 pounds to really turn into a feminine body. Um, that's what I, I began to do to myself. And that took for me about two and a half years where I then woke up one day and woo, I am thicker and I have breasts and I have uh, a more volu- full of figure. Um, I braided my hair and let it grow. So I had long braids uh, at that time that went all the way down to uh, my, my buttocks. Um, and my look had uh, been defined. Wow. Uh, here, here I was with a 34B, mm-hmm. a little boot buttocks. Uh, my own natural hair that's been braided down into uh, African braids. Um, and I take it and put it in a tree and uh, I began to ju- to begin my female journey. And that's when the wigs left and uh, I-, I went to makeup and-, and got a professional, start studying makeup on how to apply it on my skin after the laser. And then, my, then I did uh, some work up to my cheeks to have a more fuller on my cheeks. I've been to get uh, Botox and fillers on my cheeks to full out my very skinny boyish face because I had such a skinny flat face. So I did some work there and uh, that was beginning uh, of my look. All right. Um, and what about the, what about the, the mental challenges, just kind of changing your mindset, you know, from I, you know, I was a man and now I'm a transgender woman. Tell us a little bit about how that shift. You know, even during that 20 year period, I always felt I was a woman. It was always in the corner of my mind. I just didn't know at that point, Valerie, how do you express this? How do you turn that thought in your mind that it's been lingering for so long into a reality? So my mind had already been telling me for years that you are, uh, you're supposed to be a woman. You feel like a woman. So my mind, it wasn't that much of a, a journey of the mind. I just had to make up in my mind, today's the day. I'm going to walk the streets of Manhattan with this wig on and carry my purse. Instead of dressing up in my home and go to work in the day, I stepped out and then went to work dressed up. And that's when it began to get serious. 
Because then the laughter stopped at night. It was fun. But during the day, it was like, why are you doing this? You're a professional. You shouldn't be doing this. Are you mentally ill, Tony? And that's when the questions of, have you lost your mind? Are you imbalanced? Do you need therapy? I said, no, I don't need therapy. This has been in my soul for a long time. Interesting. So a lot of people equated it with mental illness. A lot of people equated it. And my mother said, my God, the devil has not only took the darkness, he's taken completely over. I must increase the prayers. I'm bringing women over to the homes. They'll be praying. I brought five of the women from the church. They're teachers and lawyers. They're coming to the house tonight. We will be praying for you at five. I say, mother, I need all the prayer I can get. Prayer's never been a bad thing. And I know you love to pray. But I got news for you, Sister Newman. It'll never change. Wow. It will maybe one day it will. And that's always been our hope for the last 30 years that one day would, would awaken and I would say, I'm going to go back to being your son, your oldest child, Tony Newman. Never happened. Bless her soul. It's never happened. And now she's 86 with Alzheimer's. So uh, who knows what she thinks now? <laughs> I understand that you also had the pleasure of meeting um, the great Maya Angelou in person and that she had a, a profound impact on you. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, I went to Wake Forest in 1981 and Maya Angelou came as a Reynolds professor in 1980. So she was there and I, you know, they did a little things and she would invite the black students and they read the poem, um, I Rock. Um, and, you know, I just love the poem. I mean, I didn't see the significance of it at that time. You know, I'm like, it talks about when you rise, when people treat you like the dirt on the ground, you're considered nothing. I never saw, I'm like, oh, it's a cute poem. I love the words. It's very good. But it did at one point, I woke up and realized that I had been forsaken by everyone around me. And I was at the bottom of the bottom of the barrel. And there was nowhere for me to go but up. I was living in the dust and the dirt. And that poem resonated with me so much more than I rise, just like the dirt on the ground. I rise and I breathe. So I named my book, I Rise, The Transformation of Tony Newman. I did reach out to the late Reynolds professor, Dr. Maya Angelou, uh, before I reached out to the, the PhD from Georgetown and asked her to write my forward. She uh, told me a, a sum of money that it would require for her to do so. I then said, I don't even have uh, uh, that type of money in my bank account. She says, well, I, I love you. You're waiting for a student, um, but I don't write forwards for free. So the amount she mentioned at that time, uh, I couldn't afford. But I did say, I'm going to do I Rise, the transformation of Tony Newman. I have arisen. And what have I risen to? The Transformation of Tony Newman. And she says, great. And then after the book came out, we did an interview together in 2012, um, Huffington Post on my blog, where she says, I commend you for stepping into your truth. You were always a special child. I knew it was there all along, you know, my, and uh, I said, it took me 20 years, but I realized what others had realized all along. I was very different. So I accepted the difference. And uh, that poem and, and her poem, Phenomenal Woman, I think another beautiful poem as well. Um, and uh, that's th that's my connection to Maya Angelou. So I would say we were acquaintances. We weren't the best of friends. Um, uh, if we were, maybe she'd have wrote my forward for free, but she did not. She asked for several thousands and thousands of dollars. And I said, you write the forward. Oh, my book, with I Rise and you in the book. She said, of course, I'm Dr. Angelou. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I love that she inspired the name of your book. She that. did. And I, and I told her in the in the interview in 2012, you know, you've inspired me so much. And she says, I want people to be their authentic self because just like you, I was a prostitute. Wow. And I said, I said, I've been a prostitute, a mistress, and an escort. She said, I love that you could say it and tell it and walk in it today. Like, that's the past. This is the present. I do it myself. Because I myself was a prostitute. And I said, I love that. And I tell people, this is what I am now. That's what I was. And I'm like, that's what I say too. What are your biggest learnings or takeaway from that time in your life when you were, you know, really you know, working as an erotic professional and, um, you know, as a prostitute, tell us like, what were your biggest takeaways? What were your, what were your moments that uh, transformed you into what's next for you? I learned during that time, how to really become a great communicator. Um, sad to say I'd taken classes, undergraduate and graduate in communications, but the on the job training is not quite the, uh, learning Institute training how to become an effective communicator. I learned to, how to communicate with some very um, powerful, wealthy um, individuals mm-hmm. in American society. That. And I talked to them about their companies and their millions of dollars. And uh, I learned a lot from people who um, had special needs. Um, and um, if not I, then someone else. And then after a while, they moved on from me to someone else. Um, it was like a passing fancy. But I learned a lot um, um, about that period. I became a good, good communicator and a great negotiator. Mm, I bet. Because I learned, you know what they taught me? You get what you asked for. Don't complain to me if you didn't get what you want. You told me A. If you wanted B, you should have said B. But when I called you on the phone and you asked for A, I gave you A. So now that I'm here, we're discussing B, and I'm totally confused. So, Tony, let me give you a, a little tip. If you want B or C, stay C. Don't stay A. Don't stay B. Don't change it when I get here. Let's get it all worked out before I come. Yeah, negotiate. I said, you know what? I increased my value. Thank you for telling me. So I began to ask for what I really wanted. Did, you ever, did you ever feel unsafe? Um, I did not, um, on the street I did, extremely cautious, but working as a professional escort and mistress, that rate we were charging, I worked with a female, uh, who happened to be an Asian female. These are very men of statue. They're coming for a service. They want as less drama as I want to get myself. As an escort on the street and a prostitute, yes, concerned about safety, carrot, pepper spray, and mace in, in my bag. If I felt bad about the conversation and talking to you, I'd turn it away. But when I got a mistress and escort at the rates we were charging, I um, never had any issues with um, with people like, you know, coming um, to, to do any bad things. Most of the people that we saw were uh, high. I'll see you in a month. I, I come this way next month and I'll, I'll call you ladies. Take care and uh, take care. <laughs> and if they came the next month, they'd give you a holler. If they didn't, then you move on. So um, not so much at that level, at the higher end, but on the lower end. Uh, I had been hit one time on the lower end on the street. I got pepper spray and mace. That stopped. 
a person had grabbed my hand and pushed me. So I got pepper spray and mace, but nothing at the professional level. Working with other females, we were extremely safe. Living in video apartments, we could see who was at the buzzer, da-da-da-da. She's in the other room. Um, the, the button I could hit, I need you to come over. This is getting a little uh, very secure. Nothing ever happened at that level where we were like, oh, my God, what's going on at that level? Uh, we were very particular. Uh, of all the calls, we would only take one or two a day. You had to say the right keywords. You had to present it in a way. So we became very cognizant. If you said a certain word that we thought was inappropriate, um, you know, I want to see you bitches. That was a, a, a word of someone who could take it verbally to a level that's uncomfortable because he felt comfortable calling a trans and a cis female a bitch. So we we began to get very clever at who we would see and what we would do. So I didn't have that much of an issue at that level. You also have uh, been with the same partner, your husband now for 19 years. Um, so I'd really love to understand, you know, the dynamic of how your relationship started and how it's evolved over time and just kind of the love and support through all the years. Just, you know, it's, it's remarkable for any couple to be, to be together that long these days. I'm always uh, so impressed with couples, but I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Uh, I had always thought you made that decision to be a transgender. Love is not probably in the cards for you. And my mother would say, bless your soul. You look, you just look great. You've just done a great job with your physical look. You'll never find love. I mean, you can't have kids. Everything down there is fake. So, I mean, who would want you? So I really believed for most of my life that I would never find a partner uh, or anyone to give me any type of love. So I was okay with that. Uh, I, I moved to L.A. and met this gentleman. Um, he uh, was a, uh, is an actor uh, and still an actor, SAG and after, um, and had done some modeling with Ebony and Jet Magazine and some others. Um, and uh, we struck up a friendship. Uh, and we were just friends. And that evolved uh, until well, I moved from New York permanently to L.A. into his small studio. Um, but at the time, um, had you start, started the journey yet? Of, of Oh, I was full-fledged. I oh, mean, you were this okay. After, this is after I'd been mistressing, got it. Okay. Been an escort, got saw okay. uh, some prestigious folk. Um, comfortable in my look, had the braids. Comfortable with with my. Uh, I was traveling a lot. Um, uh, went to Canada. Uh, really, as they say, passing. Uh, looked very feminine. Uh, most people didn't even pick up that I was a trans woman back in those days with all the hair and the 34C and the body. I looked very much like my sister. She and I became identical twins. So she's like, oh my God, you look just so much like me. Oh my God, we look like we, we could be twins. I'm like, it does look like we could be twins. Um, so I was traveling and uh, I met him. I didn't introduce myself to him as a trans woman uh, uh, of color. And he was uh, okay. Uh, he said, friends are friends. And um, hey, you're a person, I'm a person. I'm like, well, they will go. So um, the friendship started. Um, and then we uh, became a little closer and closer until I left New York to move to L.A. Um, and that point, um, we've been together ever since. You know, never thought it would be going on 20 years next year. Um, he helped me write my book. He's been supportive. When I got my first CEO job, first day I was about to throw up, walking into the boardroom, and I was so nervous at this St. James Infirmary Hospital. And they said, here's your new ED. Um, after four women, six women had run that institution, having a Black 
and a trans woman running following four other women who were basically cis, uh, bi, and straight uh, with an all-white board. It was a bit intimidating, uh, but been very supportive. Um, and he's turned out to be just like my best friend and my best ally. And you know, you marry your father. Um, he reminds me of my father. He has a, a, a quirky sense of humor. He tells jokes that sometimes nobody thinks is funny but him. Um, and my daddy used to do that. He's like, daddy, that's not funny. He said, let me tell you a joke about Chapel Hill students. And I, and <laughs> you're going to wait for us. You're a demon deacon. I'm like, daddy, I don't even think that's funny. Is that supposed to be humorous? So he reminds me of my father. We used to call Bubba. Uh, he's so much like Bubba, but he doesn't have the big, big beer gut, and he's not over 200 pounds, uh, 280 pounds. Uh, but uh, he reminds me so much of my father, just a really easygoing, laid-back uh, person who I just casually just open up to. It took me probably seven years into the relationship to trust because, you know, men had told me so many things in the past Oh, we're going to do this and that. It never manifested. So I didn't have much trust in men doing the profession I'd done and seeing how they treated the mothers of their children, their own girlfriends, and seeing me, the lie that they were telling them on the phone in my house. Oh, I'm at the bar with Tom. I'll be home shortly. And I'm like, oh, my God, these are not good people. They're lying to their wife. So I didn't expect much for myself. I said, if they do that to the mother of their own child, I have no chance in hell to get a partner. No chance in hell, because if that's the mother of your children and you're doing this to her in my presence, what kind of chance does someone like me have? You did it. You beat, you beat it. You beat the odds, right? And I, I, I grant all of that to, I put it out in the universe. I, I let go of the Christianity. I picked up spirituality. I said, I'm going to do good work. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to live my life, not breaking the law anymore because prostitution is illegal. Uh, misdemeanor, it's a minor, but it is illegal. And once I stepped away from that and stepped back into that educated uh, person who loved to read, loved to do things, I, I just went back to the mind I've always had. I was a great student. I went to Wake Forest and got my degree. I went to graduate school. I'm saying, just use this. I, I used to work for community colleges in North Carolina and taught students and communicated. So I went back to that old geeky educational Tony. You just said there was the old Tony and then there was, you know, the new Tony. And yeah, that's what I call it. Yeah, yeah. So, so I have one question and then I want to talk more about, you know, this kind of new Tony and more of your professional life. But you just said something that's really interesting that I never thought about because obviously um, you're a big part of the trans community and you probably have a lot of friends um, you know, people you're close with. So is it is it odd for um, transgender people to be in long-term relationships? I never thought about that. Um, what are the, what are, do you have any statistics? I do. Um, it, it's, it's, um, it is not a high percentage uh, for to have a long-term uh, relationship. I feel, and I'm, I'm, I am told by so many, um, who have seen us travel together, we went places together and weddings, you know, you you are lucky to have someone who is committed um, as a friend, a partner to you. The percentages of having a long-term relationship in this community is not very high. And I feel very fortunate and blessed um, um, to have that. Um, and I just attribute that to just God. Um, because I've, I've, I've just tried to present such good energy 
and, and I think that energy attracted him. I, I just believe he, he just saw that energy and uh, that communicative style. And, and we've stayed together because of communication. We leave no tone unturned. Uh, I believe communication is the key. I, I, I define it in one word. You want to stay together? Boyfriend, girlfriend, partner, husband, wife, communicate. You don't let them know what you need and they don't let you know. You'll be in divorce court before you can say, what happened? I'm divorcing you. So uh, for me, communication is the key to a wonderful relationship. That's my only advice to both. Just communicate. You you talked about um, in your um, pre-interview questionnaire that one of the, you know, the snags that you had to overcome, and, and I'm sure you still deal, still deal with, is, you know, the ability to get a job as a trans woman. And, you know, I, I kind of really sat and thought about this, what it must be like to walk into, you know, any place that you're looking for a job um, and hand your resume or email your resume, you get on an interview and you're immediately, instead of focused on, you know, what it is you're there to really talk about trying to figure, I, I'm assuming that you're trying to figure out if this person is already prejudging you or, you know, trying to come to terms with what is, you know, what is happening. Tell me a little bit about what it's like to be on the other side of that and how you mentally get through that and stay strong, because it's already so nerve wracking to go on a, on a job interview. I can't even imagine the layer of complexity that this adds um, when you're going on a job interview. Can you help explain that to the audience a bit? Now, now just for clarity, when I was on the street, I applied at McDonald's with a wait fourth degree and a half of an MBA. Couldn't get a job anywhere. That was a struggle. When I got to EQCA, um, working at Equality California, we were fighting for the second round of marriage. I'd walked in. They had lesbians there and gays and bisexuals and transgenders. And they said, do you have a degree? Do you mind if we chat? I did have a degree. Uh, I got hired. Okay. And I to work with other lesbian and gays. Got it. That was my entry into my uh, professional life as a fundraiser um, and a legislative assistant for the second round of marriage. We had lost the first round in California. We were now going back, putting it on the ballot again, and we won that second round. Once I got to EQCA, I then went over to THE as a development coordinator. Uh, he was another gay man who knew another gay man who'd worked at EQCA. So it started beginning, I began to build relationships. The EQCA focus said, oh, she comes to work every day. She's a hell of a fundraiser and she's fun. She'll, she'll, she is, uh, she's fun to hang out with. So I went over to THE. They fired him, the black female straight woman, said, can you hold the job down as the interim director of development of this $13 million organization? You've done a great job on him. So I got a promotion because they fired him. Uh, and then from that point, she died. I then realized, a new regime is coming. I didn't like that new regime. I then went to the Maitree AIDS Hospital as a development director. Jill Stockwell, who was then working at Bank of America as a VP, I came to the interview and she said, you just had such good vibes and such big earrings. And I said, we got to hire this girl. She's a white woman. This is straight as she could be. One of my best friends till today. She's married. We hook up. Uh, I go to San Francisco. We hang out. Just love each other. So from that point on, when I was up for the first CEO job at the uh, St. James, it was her and three of my board members who wrote magnificent letters. If you want a hard worker, someone who will get in the dirt with you and get things fucking done, 
this bitch will get it done. I don't know about the four white bitches you had before, but this bitch will get it done. I'm like, Jill, I just love you. She said, hey, these are white people. I can talk to them this way. She's going to get it done. So I got that job through her connections and my other board members. And from there, someone called me. You're leaving. We have an opening. Would you be interested in coming here? So it's just from that point, it's not been difficult to get jobs. Once I got going, because all the jobs I've gotten the last eight years, they've been referrals and just an easy walk in the door. we just like to talk to you. Tom told us all, all about you. He's here on the board. Uh, we'd like to talk to you about being the interim CEO of the Lyric Foundation. And then two days later, we're going to give you the job. Can you come one day a week? And I'm like, I sure can. And then from there, they recommended me to the Black AIDS Institute. That was a referral. And then from there to the director of a national coalition, which is a referral to my new CEO from two other CEOs. So I've just been moving along through referrals of, of when I go to the interview, it wasn't that stressful because they already had got someone to say, Valerie's an excellent worker. She's very dedicated. She'll get the job done. I would hire her if this was my company to hire. Got it. So the jobs that were hard to get were when kind of the- The first one, that first one. That's getting to EQCA because I, I applied and applied, been a trans woman for a couple of years, just getting my foot in the door. You've not been working a long time. You were in the education department. I said, I haven't done that in years. If you want to be honest, this is what I, I've been doing. And of course, that's not a resume uh, writer that you're in a professional escort and mistress. So I told them that. But I said, I do have a degree. If you give me a chance, I'll help you get marriage passed in California on the back. I raised lots of money that I did. I was one of the top fundraisers over there for the years I was there. Um, and then when it was time to go to a new job. They like they gave me a great reference. And then that one gave me a great reference. And then I would call on so-and-so. Can you call over there? I'll call today. So I've been moving the last 10 years through referrals and people just, just supporting me. So I'm and, not having any issues. Yeah, I think that the big takeaway here is, you know, how important your relationships and your reputation, reputation, reputation is. And I tell that if I can speak to women and trans women, relationships are everything. You can have a boss who's an asshole, but to call him an asshole, you're a prick. You should dump yourself into the trash that you are. He's never going to write you a reference and send you on. I've had awful bosses who treated me uh, very unrespectfully kind, but I've always maneuvered to say, hi, Tom, I've got a new job. Can I get a reference from you? I've always kept the relationships in a cordial manner so I can move on. It's important, a relationship. And I tell trans women, if anything, always try to leave a job in a positive manner. Don't blow it up on the way out the door and then light the fire and then burn the building down. <laughs> Even though you want to burn the building down, you're like, I want to burn this building down. You people have been awful. But you have to keep your rapport and just kind of leave with a little bit of class and just say, thank you for the opportunity. But Valerie, I'll be moving on over here to the CEO job. Thank you so much for giving me a chance. Pretty much saying fuck you. But without saying fuck you, thank you for the reference. You take care now. And I've used that to my advantage to try to leave in a manner with my dignity. I'm not going to let you drag me in the dirt because you've been so unkind to me. Because I've had gays and straights not be good supervisors, um, not be kind, not value my work, challenge me in issues like I, I know what I'm doing and have to maneuver that. So I understand what that is. It's not been a cakewalk, but I've been able to communicate and facilitate 
having somewhat of a decent relationship. So when it's time to exit, it's not where we just, it's blown up to pieces where uh, we don't speak anymore. I still speak to some of these people. They hit me up on Facebook. Congrats on the book. You, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, thank you, John. Are you still over there treating people like shit? <laughs> well, look, I think- You are I- awful boss, John. I don't say that. Like, oh, John, you are awful boss. I mean, just shitty, but- you know, he's still there doing the same shit, not just to me, because they're doing it to everybody. I didn't take it personally because I was next to a white woman. He's treating her like shit. Uh, working with a black woman. I'm like, we're all being treated. She said, girl, he treats everybody like shit. It's not who you are. It's just who he is. And I learned to maneuver that and just make sure it's time to go. How do I do this gracefully and get the hell out of here? Well, never burning a bridge is a great, great, it doesn't matter what you leave. Never burning a bridge is such an important lesson for anyone in business. You never I recommend it. I say, try to go out, don't burn it down. Now, when you get out the door, you got the reference. Maybe you can light a match and throw it over the fence. Well, you never know. You're to people 10 years later and all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're applying for a job and that person has a say, you know, it's just. And that happened. Somebody I did not like. They were on the board of directors at another company. And I went into the interview and I'm like, oh, hi, Rob. How are you? Tony has been a, a bit. I was out. And I said, he's great. Thank you for asking. Mm-hmm. Tony's been to my home. Me and my wife. I worked with Tony. I was a supervisor, what, 12 years ago? And we kept it cordial. And he was so kind. He said, Tony, I'm going to give you the recommendation for this job. You were pretty cool back then. I'm like, thank you, Ron. You were an asshole. I don't take it. <laughs> But the quality of your work is what mattered and what pulled you through. And, and that's all I've ever asked for, Valerie. Don't judge me on how I look. Don't judge me on my melanin. Don't judge me on how I dress. Judge the work. And that's how I judge my style on the work. You want to wear blue hair with a pink lipstick with a nose ring through here? I'm not concerned about that. I'm concerned about the quality of the work. I love that. Tell me about your current role, what you're what you're doing now, what your passion. I am, um, thanks to Paul Kawadi, a uh, 35-year CEO at NMAC, National Minority AIDS Conference, at the United States uh, National AIDS Conference in Puerto Rico last year, which is run by NMAC. We invited 30 CEOs, NWCP, Planned Parenthood, Urban League, um, HRC, Lambda Legal, seven trans groups. We're getting attacked, the HIV community. Laws are coming to prevent care. They want to pull back some of the Affordable Care Act. Governor of Tennessee just pulled back prevention money. I don't want federal money to do preventive to help end the HIV virus. So we decided we needed more community partners to help fight all these anti-trans, anti-HIV, and anti-LGBTQ. And what that means is, hi, Valerie, you work for AMA, American Medical Association. You're getting attacked. How about we join forces? You support me and I'll support you. What do you need from me in order to get that support? We, we have thousands, 300 HIV organizations that we can bring to your backing as a national HIV association. What do you need? And I'll tell you what I need. So it's a collaborative partnership with 30 to 40 other national groups Civil rights, human rights, housing, immigration, Latin rights, Black rights, women's rights. ERA, I just partnered with for the 12 states who don't have Equal Rights Amendment and their new CEO. We're all partnering together to say we are family. I'm now trying to get with uh, Robert Kraft, the new the owner of the Patriots, who just charged, just started a 25 million nonprofit for anti-defamation. He's running, watching. of America is Jewish. They're being attacked. 
how can we, the association, help you? And what do you need from us? So we're opening the doors to anybody that's getting attacked, like us, who want to form a partnership. Awesome. We're here to work with you. Black, 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 white, gay, straight, trans, you, whatever. If this is not trans, uh, I'm trans, but it's not, it's not black, it's not Latin. It's for anyone, um, such as the new partners I hope to join with the Jews, who he's now searching all this anti-rhetoric of the Jewish community. And he says, we have to fight. And when we fight, we win. And that's what I've been saying uh, here at the coalition. We won civil rights. They threw water. They, they killed some. We got it. If we all group together, we can stop this hatred that seems to be spreading um, in America. And it's just based off pure hate. Yeah. 1% of the population Trans community is 1%. Jews are 4% of the population. I mean, go pick up pick up a bigger population. Why are you worried about us? We're not doing anything to you. Why do you want to harm me? I'm paying taxes. I'm loving. I'm kind. If you would open your door, I'll come in and give you some tea. I mean, why can't we love each other? Why are we just fighting with such hatred? And I think it's a lack of knowledge. Hundred percent. That's why. That's why I have you on my show. You know, I'm Jewish, and I often oh, you know, people... I did not know that. I, I, well, you know, and uh, Robert Kraft. The owner of the Patriots is starting a, a new 25 million. Uh, I would hope you could share some of that money with me. I'm like, share it, baby, and I'll fight for you. You fight with me. But uh, we're beginning those talks to say we are fighting for every marginalized community who is getting vitriol. And Beautiful. Beautiful. You know, if you feel you're getting discriminated against, I'm Tony Newman at tnewman at nmac.org. If I can't help you, I'll point you in the direction where you can get some backing. You're Jew, you're Black, you're straight, you're gay. Nobody cares. We're all going to love each other. Uh, it's what I'm saying. So that's what the coalition uh, at NMAC is about. If you want to learn more about it, we have a whole page at nmac.org. Uh, I'm there. My number's there. Reach out to me. I'm here to support you, but I'm asking you to support me now. Black trans woman of color, so I need your support. I give love, but you got to give it back to me now. You got to give it back, Valerie. Hundred percent. Listen, I always, you know, people always ask me if I ever, um, you know, feel anti-Semitism, and obviously in Los Angeles, probably less than other places, though it happens. Um, but you know, the the difference is, is I can, I don't have to say I'm Jewish, and people won't know I'm Jewish, right? I can hide it just by not saying it. Not everybody has that luxury. That's right. That's right. If you're black, or if you're trans, or if you're Asian, and, and you're that's because you know, if you're a black person and you hate black people. You look at my melatonin, I'm a brown-skinned caramel. Like, okay, there's a black over there. Let's go attack her. You may not know I'm trans. You may know I'm trans. That part may not or may come up. Who knows? But as a black trans woman, those are two uh, vitriol, discriminatory triggers for a lot of the discriminatory far right. And I've got discrimination from the far left. So um, let's not say far right. I've got discrimination from my own community, LGB. I'm the T and from the left. So it comes in all forms. Yes. Right. Well, I, you know, I think it's probably um, appropriate to bring up, you know, very topical right now, what's happening with the school shootings. Um, Obviously the shooter was trans and obviously there's a lot of politics around this and, and people who are trying to, you know, pin the issue around the fact that, that, you know, the person who was responsible was trans. I wanted to just uh, touch on that with you and, and hear your perspective on it. I had a phone call today from someone in uh, um, Tennessee uh, um, who said that one of their senators said, not only are the trans people crazy, 
Now they're serial killers. And I said, let you go and ask them one question. Can you tell me how many trans serial killers there have been in the last 30 years? I would say this is the first one I've ever heard, seen in my life. And I've been trans for 31 years. I said, I don't know one trans who has plotted to do a mass killing in my life, except this individual in Tennessee, who I don't know the background. I don't know who they were. I understand they were middle to upper. They didn't know anyone at the school. They said they're looking. There's no connections there with the children or the parents or the janitor or the teacher or the principal. I don't know what would make someone go in and kill people that they don't know. They went to the school what years ago, but no one is there at the school that was there when they were there. I just, I don't understand it. And, and I may never, but I got news for you. There's only one I've ever heard of, of a trans individual or non-binary doing any type of mass shooting. So to label the trans community serial killers, uh, I think you need more than one. Yeah, it's clearly just a, a way to change the narrative. And this is going to go now. Oh, Tony, can I? Oh, I'm going to do interview. Oh, can you tell me? Is there, are there, oh, you're a serial killer. Do you know the trans? And I'm like, no, they're not. No, they're not. I said, most are living life just trying to make money, survive, buy homes, and live and be happy. This one incident in my 30-year journey, please don't label us on this one individual. We've had Blacks do bad things in serial killers. We've had whites do bad things in serial killers. We've had Latin do bad things. Are you going to say all Black people serial killers? My mother wouldn't kill us all. So you can't say all Black people. So how can you say all trans now serial killers based on one incident? That was an isolated, someone with extreme mental health issues and something seriously going on in their mind with all the guns they had and the map and they wrote stuff. Who knows why they did this? So let's not bring in the trans aspect. It was a person who was mentally ill with an assault rifle who should not have had that. You have a right to have a gun. You don't have a right to have an assault rifle to kill 10 people at one time. What about the legislation around um, the bathrooms and the labeling of bathrooms? Tell me a little bit about your perspective there. You know, that's that's a tough issue. Um, you know, I'm from North Carolina. And I go home and these good old Southern folk lawyers and people in my family, we have this conversation all the time. I don't want to walk into a bathroom. I'm a woman with my five-year-old with a man standing there playing with his wig. Mm -hmm. There are some valid points to that. I understand. I wouldn't want to walk in and see a six foot, 300 pound hairy person in the bathroom either. But I do believe uh, gender-neutral bathrooms are the way to go. I think if we could do that and compromise. Because North Carolina, that's a big issue, the bathroom. There are bills coming up about that. South Carolina and Georgia, the southern states, they're fighting that tooth and nail. And I'm trying to figure out how do we meet in the middle? How do we meet in the middle? And I'm saying maybe neutral gender bathrooms so that they can go in high school, in the other schools to a gender-neutral bathroom. Good suggestion. I think that may solve some of the problems. I do understand the argument uh, from my cousins who say, I, no, honey, I don't want to see that in the bathroom, Tony. I don't want to see it. You go in the bathroom, you look like a woman. I'm okay with that. I probably couldn't tell, but I've been in the bathroom and they're just putting on lipstick and I'm like, you look like my Uncle Joe. Get the hell out the bathroom. There are some issues. Um, and people, I think, are coming from a place of fear. Right. 
Um, and uh, I don't have much to say on that. It's such a um, uh, a debated issue. But my my ideal is if we could get gender neutral bathrooms, then let them go to a gender neutral bathroom. Uh, and I, I think that could solve some it's of the nice, bad. It's nice that you can see both sides of the perspective. I, I can't. I can't. I can't. My cousin, I love dearly, an educated woman. And she says, come on. You know, I'm 42 with two kids. I go in the bathroom, just going to pee. I don't want to engage. I don't want my alarm system to go up when I see something that I think is a bit odd. I don't want my child exposed to that. And I, I have a right not to be exposed to that tone. Um, and, uh, I mean, her argument was compelling. Six feet, 280 pounds, hairy like a beast with a big beard, with a wig on. Um, uh, I, I don't really know what Tony could say to that, but maybe there should have been a gender neutral bathroom. But for the kids, can't we give them gender neutral bathrooms and just settle this that way where they're not being, they don't go there, they don't go here. Gender neutral bathroom, they're at the airports now, they're all over. Um, I think that could be a solution if we could just add one bathroom that's gender neutral and then let non-binary or whomever wants to go to a bathroom by themselves, they get that chance. That way I'm not infringing on you and you're not infringing on my right to use the bathroom, which we all have to do on a on constant basis, on a daily basis. Absolutely. Good. It's a good suggestion and definitely... I'm going to get kicked back on that, that I didn't be stronger about the bathroom. But, uh, you know, hey, uh, I'm older than most of you all. I've been around the block more than most. And I've talked to some people I really respect and love a great deal who've given me a perspective that's different from my perspective. And I have to respect that because if you want respect, you have to give it back. I respect that you do that. I think that's really nice that you're both she did it in love. She did it kindly. I accepted it in love and I accepted it kindly. So we left it at that and went and had a glass of martini and was like, okay, let's go. And we let it go. So there we go. So Tony, you're working towards um, a Juris Doctorate. Uh, tell us about that. What's the, what, what is the, you quit. Valerie, Valerie, I've quit. I, I, well, no, I didn't. I took courses and then I had to take a break when I became the interim CEO at Lyric because I had to fire people and they, they, it was a mess and they had fired all their vice presidents. And then I went to the BAI and then there was this. So I'm now regaining to go finish up what needs to be finished. And hopefully in the next year, year and a half, I'll finish a long term journey of a Jewish doctorate degree. I am going to finish it, but it's been a journey trying to stay on path because then I have to. To, to get in a new job. And then I'm like, I can't go this semester. I've got to hire new staff. I always focus on my positions and take the schooling back because I should have finished the schooling uh, a long time ago. And I beat myself up for that. I should have finished it when I had the mindset and everything was going that way. But when you start working and you're traveling, it becomes difficult. And then you got board meetings. Da, 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 da. So I do hope to finish it. But it has been a break for quite a while maybe a year and a half. I hope to regain it in the fall and go back, but I'll get it. People say it's been a long journey. I have no doubt that you're going to, I have no doubt that you're going to finish. I have no doubt. I am going to finish it. I don't know about taking the California bar. I don't know about that, but I'll say I have a Jewish adopted degree. We'll call it that. And I, 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 I'll, I'll probably never use it at this point. I don't need it. Uh, it wouldn't even enhance me in any way at this point because I've got all my jobs without it. But I can say I have it. 
and I've completed it. And I've tried to, your own personal soul. Your own I try to complete what I finish. You know, my mother always said, if you start it, complete it now. Quitters never win. So that rings in my ear even to today. Don't quit because uh, you never forget what your mother tells you. You know, you think this is bullshit. But as you get older, all of her sayings keep running back in your mind. So your mother has a great importance to you. I remember most of the stuff she says. All right. So what I'm going to do now, this is the very last part. This will just take a couple minutes are some rapid fire questions. And I'm looking for answers that are like one or two, three words maximum. Okay. Okay. Uh, it could be one sentence, but let's keep them short and rapid. Okay. Short and sweet. Okay. All right. So Tony, what keeps you up at night? The hate in, in, in the 26 states that are attacking anti-trans folk. If you could completely switch careers and do something totally different, what would it be? Sing like Whitney Houston. She's my favorite singer. What's your biggest strength? Communication um, and collaboration. What is your biggest weakness? I hate bullshitters. They test my patience. I leave the room when I feel I'm bullshit. I say, thank you. Uh, we're, we're not going to achieve anything today. And I go home. Who is your 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 biggest idol or mentor? Hmm, that's a good question. It was the late Dr. Maya Angelou. But lately, I've been feeling Michelle Obama. I'm liking her style. I'm liking the way she's kicking it. Uh, I wear a lot of the same clothing. She and I dress very similar, very colorful, have on purple today with the boots. Uh, I'm going to say Michelle Obama. Living, Dr. Maya Angelou, deceased. What's next for you? I hope to turn this national coalition into something very powerful um, and defeat the 318 laws that are coming up through these states to affect people who are in marginalized communities. Uh, I would love to defeat some of these laws that they're trying to put on Texas and Tennessee and Florida. We can get some victories there. I feel like we've accomplished something. And lastly, what does success mean to you? Living your authentic life, rich or poor, black or white, gay or straight, being truly who you are day in and day out. Walk in your house that way, walk out your house into the world that way. I think that's my greatest dream. Well, Tony, thank you so much. You uh, just in this short time have you know opened my eyes and taught me so much. I know so many people listening will feel the same way. I appreciate your your candor, your honesty, and um, you know thank you for doing this with me today on such a special day. I can only imagine how many people wanted to speak with you today. So I feel very honored to have you on my show. If we could change one mind through this podcast, I've achieved my goal. Someone to say, well, I never thought of it that way. I've achieved my goal. Well, you already have. So there you I'm, go. I feel I'm a success. One person at a time is all I'm trying to do. Not 50 at a time. If one person in the room comes up and says, you know, I learned something today, Tony Newman. And it was done in a very kind and polite way. Thank you very much. I'm like, look at them and I have achieved my goal. And people are like, that was just one person. You had like 500 people in the room. If I can get one person who had to think, to maybe change their way of thinking, I feel I've accomplished something. It's one person at a time. So. You're incredibly brave and such an inspiration. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Valerie. And I appreciate the time. And you guys have a great weekend. Thank you. Thank you.